Dolly Parton is not a visitor to our show today, but I wish I could broker an introduction between her and my next guest, Jillian Haslam. I am Suzanne Lang, and I bring you a novel idea. Jillian Haslam grew up in the sort of poverty that we here in America can't always fathom, even though we here in Northern California have unhoused and hungry people, including children, visible at shopping centers, roadsides, underpasses. Some are lucky enough to live in shelters. We may drive by what are called encampments or see vehicles with people and animals and stuff at the far end of a parking lot. We may give money to organizations like COTS or a local food bank. And frankly, I hope you give to public radio so we can have conversations about the world around us. It isn't always clear what the course of action should be. Books help. Honest journalism helps. Information helps. Supporting public media gets the word out on a number of issues, social, cultural, political. It creates conversations. I hope you will contribute to KRCB, Sonoma County's NPR station. You can do so online at krcb.org by hitting the Donate button. Support programs like this one that aim to open up a line of communication with you, our listeners and readers. krcb.org, click the Donate button. Today we visit a remarkable woman who has devoted her life to giving after emerging from what seemed like a hopeless situation of starvation and poverty in the slums of Calcutta. Music was just one of the conduits of hope that Jillian Haslam experienced, and we'll talk about in just a minute. Later in the show, I'll bring you one of my favorite conversations with Kent Wong, whose escape from communist China was told in his memoir, Swimming to Freedom, My Escape from China and the Cultural Revolution, An Untold Story. Western music was an inspiration to him also. His family, like Jillian's, struggled to meet basic needs as they were in the underclass in China. Over half a million people crossed the South China Sea by dinghy or being smuggled or, yes, swimming to Hong Kong, which was then under British rule. Stay with us. It's a novel idea. Visit us online at krcb.org and click on the button that says Donate. Your action communicates to us that you appreciate this program, a novel idea. I appreciate your being a listener, and I thank you for your generosity. We got chicken every Sunday, and the preacher comes around. And every Saturday morning. 
we buy products manufactured in India without the awareness that the situation in India with regard to poverty hasn't changed a whole lot since the 1950s and from when Mother Teresa brought attention to it in the final decades of the last century. In her book, A Voice Out of Poverty, The Power to Achieve Through Adversity, Jillian Haslam describes herself as a child with delicate emotions, insecurity, and always hungry, who pushed through her fright and anxiety to do well in school, learn a trade, and as a young woman, enter a path that would take her into the world of banking, and ultimately, for her and her family, a life in England. However, her attachment and compassion for those still living in poverty in India continues to rile her emotions and drive her enterprise. Jillian grew up in the slums of Calcutta, often homeless, hungry every day. For some time, her family called the space under an outside stairwell home. When she was housed with other families, there was most often servitude and cruelty involved. Jillian's family were Anglo-Indians who were considered the lowest in society after India gained independence in 1947. Her early life experiences, especially saving the life of her newborn sister who was born malnourished, set her life's foundation, where now she aims to empower others to emerge from adversity. She is a philanthropist, a motivational speaker, Let's listen to our conversation. A Voice Out of Poverty, The Power to Achieve Through Adversity. I am here with you, its author, Jillian Haslam. So pleased to be able to talk to you today about this book. Thank you, Suzanne. I'm very grateful to you for having me on the show, really. You grew up in India and... It has one of the largest economies in the world. It has one of the largest populations on the planet and still harbors a great degree of poverty and prejudice. And this story is of you and your family and early life in very desperate conditions, yet surrounded by a lot of love and and it's the story of how you created a life for yourself and the, the mechanisms to encourage others to succeed in life. So there's a lot to talk about here. First, I'd like you to set us up by describing Anglo-Indians and how they're regarded in India, because this seemed to be part of what put your family in a desperate situation along with the poverty you lived in. And I think many of us are unaware of that kind of stratification of these Anglo-Indians. So describe that for us. Well, Suzanne, uh, the term Anglo-Indian is a term that many people um, describe very differently. Some people describe it as basically British soldiers that came to India, uh, British uh, servicemen that came to India who married Indian women. And so you have a British father and an Indian mother. And many people actually look at it, um, describe Anglo-Indians in that way. Uh, Some people describe Anglo-Indians 
as the other way around. So you have a British mother and an Indian father, you know, a mix. But there are the true uh, description is actually when you have British parentage, both sides. So in my case, and in many people's cases, um, my father and mother were both born in India at the time of the British Raj. But they both, both their parents, mother and father, both sides, uh, were both British. So my father's mother and father were British. My mother's father was Scottish and her mother was British Armenian. So that is actually the, the correct uh, description of an Anglo-Indian. And after 1947, yeah. when India gained independence, a lot of Anglo-Indians left. And those that remained, your family remained, were highly discriminated against. And it seems like that was something you had to deal with a lot growing up. Yes, Suzanne. You know, my we always used to ask my father... After 1947, when India got her independence, uh, you can even go to the archives now and to the libraries and you will see the newspapers. The headlines were India's for the Indians. Every paper carried that. And it was pretty much saying that, you know, this is our country, please leave, right? Obviously, after, you know, 200 years of what had happened, people wanted the British out. And whenever we turned to my father and said, you know, why are we being treated in this way? Why are people, you know, asking us to leave? Why, why, are, we, why are we being called all these names and things like that? My father never, ever, ever looked at anything negatively. He always said, look, after so much of disturbance and, you know, partitions and um, these kind of problems, you will get people who are hateful, who are angry, don't worry about it. You know, it's just what happens and it happens everywhere around the world. This is how it is. And it's my fault. The British were given one year in which to leave the country. And my sister took all her children and went back to the UK. Uh, I chose to stay. And like me, hundreds and hundreds of other families uh, made the same decision. And I decided to stay here because I loved India. India was where I was born uh, during the time of the British Raj. Uh, this is all I know. And I'm very happy. Uh, I was very happy to stay. I didn't know that things were going to get this bad. If not, I would have left. You, um, so you already had this um, predisposition to prejudice from others that, um, you know, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed like your sister Donna um, was really a target. But you also lived in extreme poverty. I think when I was reading the book, Jillian, I was um, shocked and, and hurt by some of your descriptions of where you lived, yeah. yet your mother and father had this incredible love for their children, and it seemed like that protected you quite a bit growing up. So I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. Of course, Susan. You know, my parents actually, um, along with the poorest of the poor, 
were instrumental uh, when it came uh, to saving our lives. We, as Anglo-Indians, when we were growing up there, life was extremely tough after independence. My father lost his job. Uh, he lost everything. We were reduced to, at first, my mother and father took my little sister and myself from one person's house to the other. Sometimes we were given a shelter. Sometimes we were asked to move on because people could no longer take care of us. And we ended up living under a flight of stairs. Then we ended up living in a proper slum where, to give you an idea, almost more than 3,000 people shared three toilets. Uh, we filled water from a tube well. Um, there was hardly any electricity. And before that, my parents had already lost four children, one after the other, before the ages of six months, to malnutrition and abject poverty. It's impossible to describe, Susanna, sometimes what we went through. It, it was as though death took one of us and left one of us and took one of us and left one of us. And I'm very fortunate, you know, to be alive. Like I said, my parents lost four little ones uh, before the ages of six months. And it, it's very much, you're right, um, similar to the Windrush scandal that, you know, has just taken place in the UK, uh, where something very similar happened in Africa. And it's happened to us, but nobody seems to care. There are, there are still hundreds of families that are left there, living by the drains, living in in worse than abject poverty. I was very lucky. I don't know what happened to me. Maybe it's what I grew up in. Maybe it's just the, the desperation. Maybe it's uh, the inspiration that my, my parents pushed us to live and to keep going. Maybe it's the sadness and the desperation that I grew up with. But I fought and I fought and I fought to where I am today. But I still worry about the hundreds that are left there and nobody cares for what's happening to them. You recount in your book a meeting with Mother Teresa and it was not a ceremonial meeting. You stood in a line with thousands of other people and she gave you food. And there was a time in this country when Mother Teresa brought a lot of visibility to poverty and poverty in India. And now, perhaps even in India, I'm not sure, but from a global perspective, India makes a lot of products. And so perhaps the poor who are still malnourished and, and living in horrible conditions have even become more invisible to us in the wake of other things happening. I mean, is that the sense you have that even within India, this is kind of invisible? Of course, most definitely, Susanna. I have six charities there now. I have play schools for children and beautician centers for young girls, trying to give them a chance in life, uh, tailoring centers, English language schools, um, we have food banks for the aged and we have all of this going for them and I'm doing the very best I possibly can to help them because there is really and truly such a huge divide between the rich and the poor. And if you talk to very many people there, you will be told that poverty is getting better and it's not as bad, but you've got to work there and live there to understand 
just how bad it is. There are babies who are thrown on dustbins. I could send you a picture right now. It's just very sad. There is there is a man who carried his parents in baskets with a bamboo over his shoulders for hundreds of miles because they were so old and they couldn't get to a hospital. There are little ones who are going to the toilet at the side of the road. And I mean, there are people and rich women who step out of their cars um, with Louis Vuitton bags and Chanel bags and yes. all of the best kind of perfumes and big shopping bags. And they just step over these children and these children are going to the toilet on the roadside and they're making only blood. Nobody cares, Suzanne. It is absolutely unimaginable how bad and how sad it is. And yet there is a section of the world that does not know that this is happening because obviously countries like India are, are sending, you know, missiles to Mars and looking at settling on, you know, different planets and trying to keep up with the world and trying to do great things. And, you know, most of, as you said, most of the uh, the big companies are using labor in India, but really it's exploitation to the core where the people are getting poorer and these people are just getting richer. The reason I wrote this book is not because I want to ask the world, when are we going to try to alleviate this kind of this poverty and this mass desperation, but more to take this book and try to put it into every little girl and boy's hands and all the girls that come to my centers now, you know, I try to give them the education. We, we run a program called the E3 program, which is education, empowerment and employability. And I try to give all of them a chance in life so that they can go out and get a job. Because if you ask them one question, what is it you want in life? They'll just say, ma'am, or Didi, or which is sister or auntie, I, I just want to feed my children. I just want to feed my parents. Just help me to get there. We need more help, Suzette. That's yes. why I wrote this book. And I just yes. want to tell the little ones, as Mother Teresa said, that, you know, we have to just stop waiting for these leaders. We've just got to do it ourselves one at a time. And you have got to just try and help yourself because I always say to them, sweetheart, no one is going to help you. You've got to help yourself. But sometimes it's just impossible, Suzanne, when you're on that, when you're living in such squalor. Jillian, in telling this story, you also were in a situation of, as you say, living under a stairwell. And it's equally shocking that then you say you moved into a proper slum. And that your mother suffered malnutrition because she was giving her food to you, her children. And sometimes you would be sent to live with somebody else, thinking that that might be a better situation. But it really often wasn't. And you did go to school, but often had to stay home and help as well. Yet it seems that education was a big part of what enabled you to start stepping forward. So talk about how you were able to pull yourself in a direction that allowed you 
to succeed and then support first your family and then these other enterprises that help other people. So how did you emerge into being able to enter into business and start earning wages? Suzanne, I think, you know, like thousands of girls that are there right now, hundreds of girls who come to my centers every day, and sometimes in the middle of a class, I'm taking a class on Zoom, or there's another teacher who's taking a class, and suddenly one of the girls will start crying, and I'll say, what's wrong, sweetie? Why are you crying? What's happened? And she'll say, ma'am, I haven't eaten since yesterday. Mm. And your heart just goes out to them because they just don't have any food, but they are trying to pursue their education. They're trying to come to class. They are trying their best to get educated. And they'll go anywhere to any extreme to try and get the education in order to try and get that small job. I think that's one aspect is that we all strive. I mean, I started with working and going for a course uh, Suzanne, that was over mountains of sand and mountains of gravel and construction sites. And I used to walk over all of this just to get to one small little office, just to do a receptionist job there. Uh, and even there, the men used to not leave me alone. They used to try to be on me all day. It was just terrible to even just get to work. I think you read in the book, I used to get in the bus and these men used to try to come through the window to try and sit on my lap. And it was so hard in a public bus. But I think the most important thing to remember is that when you have little siblings, the elder ones, honestly, Suzanne, we will put our lives on the line for them. When my little sister was brought home from the hospital and my mother said she has three days to live, so don't get you know, too attached to her because the doctors have said she's not going to make it. I was very, very tiny when we were back in Dum Dum a few years before that. I saw my mom put my little brother and sister, Kimberly and Alan, into tea cases, into tea chests because they couldn't even afford coffins. And I I experienced my, my sister Donna screaming her head off because she was a little bigger at the time. She was about 11 or 12. And she was screaming her head off, just telling my mom that don't put the baby in this tea chest because you'll suffocate her. And myself and my little sister, Vanessa, we just stood there wondering what my mom's doing. Why is she putting the baby in the tea chest? But then we understood that the babies had died one after the other. So moving forward a few years, when Susan was brought home from the hospital, and my mom said the doctors have given up on her. I could not come to terms with that, Suzanne. I just looked at her little fingers and toes and I loved her. And I thought, no, this can't happen. You can't bring somebody so sweet to us. And then why is God doing this to us? And I, I think I just forgot my fear and forgot what had happened to me. Because, you know, before that, I was locked in a toilet with cockroaches with one of my mom's friends who did that to me for months on end and by that time I had lost my voice I I couldn't move I used to cry for everything if my parents 
even said the word school I used to be so nervous I used to cry my mother used to try to keep me home from school to look after the little ones so we were dealing with poverty starvation malnutrition death you name it everything but when my sister was brought home from the hospital I thought to myself no I I can't come to terms with this I've got to save this little one and I think millions of little girls in India today do just that. They will do anything in their power to Suzanne to save the little one's lives. So yes, of course, you know, we had the worst accidents that again, many girls today even have. My little sister Vanessa fell into a manhole. I mean, two weeks ago, a little baby had fallen, a little boy had fallen into a manhole here in Britain, Suzanne, and it was headlines it was news it was on the bbc it was on itv but when my sister fell in and hundreds of little kids fallen nobody even cares who cares whether they die my other little sister was burnt right to her ribs after falling on somebody's mudden uh, fire with hot water we have lived through devastating accidents and children live like that every day is that correct no but I think that's the main thing. That is the resilience that we have. When you love somebody so much, you want nothing else but to keep life safe for them as much as possible. I remember my parents going out, my dad going very, very far to work. And we only had to pay 100 rupees rent, Suzanne, which was like one pound. And even that he couldn't afford to pay. And the landlord went to strike him. Imagine my father was a British officer and a man who had no standing, who didn't even speak a word of English. He, he was just like a villager. He had the right to raise his hands to my father. Yes, because that's what happens when you live in poverty, Suzanne. So for me, I wanted to do everything in my power to just ease the burden for my parents and for the little ones as much as I could. So my father used to go to work. My mother used to go out in search of food or whatever little money she could get, doing odd jobs for people. And I used to take my sister Vanessa, we used to go to the local tea shops and dig out all their ash from their fire, these huge fires, and carry the ash from their tea shops right to the dustbin, throw it and come back. We must do 40, 50 trips up and down with our little hands and our little cans, you know, up and down. And then in return, he would give us some jalebis or some samosas or some sweets, whatever was left. And he used to say, now, now get out. But we used to come home and covered in ash. We used to look like ghosts, you know, <laughs> with only our eyes showing. But the little ones used to laugh and laugh. And we used to say, whatever it is, we've brought food home. So let's sit down and eat it. It's the same thing, Suzanne. Like when I mentioned in my book, I, I cooked a stew once and I started cooking mm, yes. in the morning. And by night it was ready and I dropped it. It was a mess in that little room. But we gathered it up and we ate it because we had to. We had. In the book, you mention that you were Christians. Yes. But you don't really talk about faith as a driver of where you went and how you took care of things. Maybe you said prayers and that sort of thing. But I didn't get the sense that um, faith was a big driver, maybe because it was too abstract in a world of such deprivation and poverty. But I wonder if you, you could maybe talk about that a little bit. Of course. Suzanne, you're right. You know, in a world where you're starving every day, 
where you do not know where your next meal is coming from, where your children are dying all around you, when you don't have a home and a house, where you, you know, you, you don't know which daughter is going to be molested or hurt or killed or die or burnt or, you know, whatever. Yes, of course, my parents were both, we are all Christians, and my mother made us say our gentle Jesus every single night. So even when we were under the stairs, when she put that cloth down and we used to lie down all three, my, my sister and myself, you know, on both sides of her, Vanessa and myself, my mom used to always say, okay, now, you know, um, fold your hands and look up at the stars and say your gentle Jesus. And we used to say our gentle Jesus every single night and our, our father in our little room in the slum, we had an, a little altar and on one side we had the picture of Jesus Christ and the other picture we had the picture of Our Lady uh, of Wellingtonie. And we used to kneel down on the floor with our elbows on the bed and we used to look up at those pictures and say our prayers every night. We were definitely, we never forgot Jesus, we never forgot my mom while stitching, you know, the coat of many colors after listening to Dolly Parton's song. <laughs> she used to tell us to stories from the bible she used to tell us stories about joseph and his coat of many colors etc so we remembered all of that suzanne but we were not highly highly religious but you know when you opened uh, the program you asked me about mother Teresa. there was a church uh, nearby that we used to attend and there was a presbytery a presbytery like a place where poor people go and collect whatever the, you know the sisters of charity give you now we are protestants we aren't catholics but Christians are Christians, and that's how my parents brought us up. So every Friday, we would go to the presbytery and we would queue up. And the Sisters of Charity used to give us all a bag of powdered milk, uh, maybe one or two packets of biscuits, depending on how many members you had in your family, and a bag of clothes all tied up. And the clothes used to come from England or America or, you know, uh, many Western countries. And you couldn't really try the clothes on because there were just hundreds of people in the queue, poor people. And we used to bring those clothes home. We were thrilled to bits. And, you know, in there were granny's panties. We used to put on those panties and roam around the whole area <laughs> because we never, ever had panties. You know, uh, the panties mm -hmm. used to start at our, stomach, at our waist and end at our knees or our ankles. They were so huge. But we used to wear them very proudly because we didn't even have uh, uh, panties, uh, Suzanne, you know, so... That's really um, what and how, I mean, the situation is uh, when you're growing up in such poverty. So does religion play a part? Of course it does. And you don't forget God. But I've heard my mother say many times, God, where are you? You know, mm -hmm. God, are you not looking at what is happening to us? Are you not looking at the kids who are dying around us? Are you not there? Where is God? I heard my mother say this many times. Well, it seemed to me, as I read the book, that your mother, she used storytelling a lot to raise your spirits, yes. and that she encouraged gratitude, even in the most dire situations, and, and that the strength of your mother is perhaps even what drives and inspires you today in, in the work you do. Yes, Suzanne, indeed. I, in fact, only 
yesterday I put out a, an article and a blog post on her on social media about the five lessons that she has taught us and left us with. My mother was a highly, highly charitable person. And all my sisters, actually, in a way, we are all like that, highly charitable people. But my mother was just different. She would bring a person off the street, Suzanne, uh, somebody who, you know, a man that is in the filthiest of clothes. We didn't know him. She would just bring him off the streets and bring him into our little room and say to all of us, well, you know what? He's staying with us. And we used to say, mom, we are all girl children. You can't just bring a man off the streets. We are already sleeping in one line. Our room is only eight by 10 feet. And she used to say, I don't want to listen to it. He's staying. We are going to share what five can eat, six can eat, and we are going to share with him. And when my dad used to come home, we used to run down the lane and say to my dad, daddy, she wants to keep another man. Mommy's brought another man in the house. And my dad used to say, children should be seen and not heard. Your mother's word is final. And we used to have to live with strangers all the time because my mother just believed that if nobody would help, then we should. We should help with every little thing that we had. That's the kind of person she was. And my father was highly inspirational. He was full of quotes and songs and all of that kind of thing. My father used to play um, Dolly Parton's song for us, you know, um, My Coat of Many Colors. And we have listened to this song thousands of times. And I keep saying to people, even to my publicist, you know, um, and to my publisher, it's so amazing that a woman so far away, who doesn't even know that we existed, a family so far away in India, in some slum, but we lived by her songs and her songs got us through so much. My mother used to stitch all these patchwork duvet covers and quilt covers and curtains and pillowcases only because my sister and myself used to be sent with two plastic bags to every tailor shop in the in the slum all over and all these tailor shops used to cut all these bits of pieces that used to fall on the floor we used to gather them up bring it home and my mother used to create these beautiful quilts etc for us and while she used to do that she used to tell us the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors and my father used to play Dolly Parton's song and there was a time Susanna, when I was friendly with a boy, as you know, you grow up, you 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 get a you have a boyfriend, and this boy just didn't want to know me. He he was very sweet to me, but whenever he saw his rich folk come by, he used to cross the road and say like, you know, don't come near me, don't speak to me, don't don't hang around near me, and stuff like that. And he used to go home and say to my dad, I feel very bad, maybe because my clothes are, you know, very poor, or maybe my shoes are torn, or I don't have that kind of makeup or maybe I look very poor compared to the other girls. Maybe that's why he's treating me like this. And my dad used to say, I can get into the history and I can tell you why he's treating you like this, but sit down. I have something that I'd like you to listen to. And he used to play Dolly Parton's song for me, Chicken Every Sunday. And oh yes. my God, Suzanne, that just changed my life. I knew then that there is this girl who has changed her life by the song and I'm going to do the same. And I just wish I could meet Dolly Parton because I just want to tell her from the bottom of my heart what her, her music has done to a family that honestly had no uh, hope at all. No hope at all. Well, she might want to meet you as well, Jillian. 
you know, you worked your way through banking in India, getting opportunities, then you moved and you moved your family members to England where you live now. I'm talking to you in London. And now you are the one who you mentioned some of your endeavors, some of your organizations and foundations that they exist to help others. And so I wonder if you can just before we say goodbye, talk about your current work that is helping so many other people. I started this work, actually, Suzanne, from the time, I mean, like I said, we were all highly charitable. Uh, when we were little, my mom used to somehow give us one rupee pocket money. And every time we passed a beggar, my mom used to say, if you pop, pop that rupee into the beggar's bowl, you'll get back double. And we used to say, but how? And she used to say, well, Jesus will give you double. Just do it. And my sister and myself used to take turns to pop our one rupees into that beggar's bowl. And when we didn't do that, we used to run to a store called Chain Stores, which was opposite our school. And we used to buy, in those days, you had a 100 gram pack of butter, which they used to um, cut in two and sell 50 grams each to the poor people who couldn't afford. So we used to buy this little tiny bit of butter and um, a little bottle of jam, which used to last for months. And we used to run to the aged home opposite our school and make all the old people sit outside and put one slice of bread on each of their laps with a little butter and a little jam. And we used to say, eat up auntie, eat up uncle. And we used to get so much joy, Suzanne, out of just seeing them eating because they never ever got butter and jam. That's how my parents helped us uh, to share. So as we grew up, we started to do more and more and more and more. And my sister today, Vanessa, you know, looks after two children, uh, you know, who are not her own and she's brought them up. Um, there's just so much that we've done over the course of all these years but me in, in particular I think I've taken it to a whole new level because like I said I have these beautician schools for girls I have tailoring schools for girls English language schools secretarial schools I have play schools for the little ones the street children because most of their parents are um, they do labor work hard labor work they put tar on the streets or they put you know bricks on buildings and the little ones are just left at the side of the road Suzanne with they're lucky if they get one crust of bread uh, a day most of the mothers are so malnourished they don't they can't even breastfeed them just like my mother was she could breastfeed none of us not even Susan when she was brought home from the hospital but I do remember how the poorest of the poor in that slum saved our lives like the meat man used to keep all his dried bones and we used to go every day and collect it come home and make soup because it's it's very nourishing we used to the potato and tomato vegetable lady used to keep all the bad potatoes and bad tomatoes for us we used to cut off all the bad parts come home and cook it um, the grocery man used to keep you know rice for us and dal for us and every single poor person had absolutely nothing to give but they shared everything they had Suzanne and so my mother inculcated that into us and so this is how we grew up and so today I won the Mother Teresa International Memorial Award I was in shock to have received that award but then I also received the true legend award from the Telegraph newspaper and I was just in shock because I never expected to receive all these awards Suzanne if I don't want the awards I just want these people or these companies 
to try and help to understand what human desperation is all about. So that's what I do every single day of my life. I wake up every day. I teach the girls on Zoom. I work morning, noon and night. I don't know when last I had a Christmas or a New Year or a birthday or anything. I just work 24-7, Suzanne, to do all that I can. And hopefully with this book and with your help, and I'm so grateful for you uh, and this program that we we try and at least tell these people that somebody somewhere cares. If that happens, then that's enough for me. Well, I'm humbled to be talking to you today. And I will encourage our listeners to get involved, uh, get involved locally. We have people here who are also without shelter yeah. who who have nothing and each one of us is in a position to be able to do something even even small Jillian Haslam I am all choked up now <laughs> and sorry so good to talk to you and I wish you well thank you Suzanne more than grateful my conversation with Jillian Haslam. The book is A Voice Out of Poverty. Let's take a short break so I can ask you to participate in the well-being of our station by donating 40 or 60 or $120 to keep our voices coming to you. I hope you value the conversations I bring you and that you learn something, whether you end up reading the book or not. KRCB.org is the place to go on the web. There is a button that says donate and it just takes a few minutes. There are thank you gifts and I urge you to contribute what you can. Back through the years I go wandering once again Back to the seasons of my youth I of rags that someone gave us and how my mama put the rags to use there were rags of many colors but every piece was small and I didn't have a coat and it was away down in the fall mama sewed the rags together so in every piece we loved she made my coat of many colors that I was so proud of As she sewed she told a story From the Bible she had read About a coat of many colors Joseph wore and then she said Perhaps this coat will bring you Good luck and happiness And I just couldn't wait to wear it And Mama blessed it with a kiss My coat of many colors that my mama made for me made only from I'm Suzanne Lang with KRCB's A Novel Idea. Jillian talked about the strength of her mother and the moral compass that guided her. Kent Wong's mother was also a source of strength for him. His memoir of escaping Maoist China in the 1970s is told in his riveting memoir, Swimming to Freedom, My Escape from China and the Cultural Revolution, An Untold Story. 
The book cracks open a period of Chinese history in a deep and sometimes disturbing way. The story is tragic, funny, and eye-opening, and I'm bringing you just a snippet here of our conversation. If you're interested in listening to my entire talk with him, visit our past shows at krcb.org. Follow the program or the podcast links. Let's pick up on my conversation with him about his mother and his escape from China to Hong Kong. Your mother, who everybody called mommy, anybody who met her, it seems, called her mommy. And in your storytelling, she is this bright light of wisdom and gentleness and strength and not just to you and, and your family, but she really did provide a lot of strength to other people too. And so can you talk a little bit about your mother, this just incredible woman who uh, seemed to give you a lot of wisdom too? Uh, yes, you're right. They are, um, my mother is pretty strong woman and also he's apolitical. Right. In his judgment is right and wrong. Then really, I really like that. It's just the down to earth, that kind of person. And since my father, the downfall, and he was sent to about 100, uh, yeah, 100, um, 120 kilometers from Canton City, work in a small city. And we grew up with my mother all the time. And it was a difficult time, the difficult years, those years, because Everybody look at us. Many of our friends try to avoid us because my father's downfall. And she had that kind of manner. It's just, let's put it this way. They make people comfortable and also kind of humble in a humble way and then in a very smart way too. And that there are lots of strong and good women in China. So I say, I'm going to really tell people how strong Chinese women are using my mother as a good example. I think the thing that really um, touched me is the uh, after I escaped the first time when I got home and I saw the uh, incense stick burn out, the ashes fell over the win windowsill down to the desk below. And then she has been burning the incense stick all the time. So I think the, um, I think there's a lot of pain and she endured, she put it inside. Never let it show. That is a strength. I think a lot of people couldn't do that at that time because um, she never told me how humiliating it is when she had to knock at the door of the people, of our friends to borrow some money, you know. Every month you have to borrow some money to make up the payback and then borrow again because my father's salary was cut one third. And then also uh, the, he, she had to manage the whole family. And then she never encouraged me, you have to go uh, escape now. And she just said that, well, what is the alternative? And I cannot encourage you to do something is so risky. What if you die in the water, right? And then, so the, you have to make up your mind. Yeah. If you decide, let's go, I'm 100% behind you. And then I know you have a future here. And I think that is the things I really like because he did not push me. And then he 
you, he asked me to think. He asked me to make up my own mind. So that is, I think the people, this um, is very benef benefit when you grow up is someone will say, you do the right things, but never do the bad things and you do the right thing. And then things will take care of self as long as you try your best and nobody can predict the outcome. I talked to my mother, say, before my make up my mind, say, I'm afraid of dying. Because I say, when I, if I die, what, who, where, where, will, where am I, where will I be, right? It's just gone. And then there's a, and there is a, yeah, you go to heaven, but who want to go to heaven, right? What's, what, what's in heaven? They got the sun, they got the star, they got the clouds. <laughs> And that's all that's so cold to me, right? I say, look at what we have here. We got everything. You just look at the, the, the grasses, the flowers and everything. We got so many things here. So the, uh, that is really, uh, I fear, I fear of dying. I, I'm, not, I'm not a brave person. If, we are. if people say, oh, this guy's brave. You try so many times. No, I'm not a brave person. I always think that the, uh, but you have to try. You have to take a risk. If you are going to make it, you are going to make it. If you're gonna die, as long as you think it through, as long as you do your best, but you still fail, then you say, yeah, I did my best, but I failed. So what? That's life. That is my attitude. Uh, there's a couple of things I wanna comment on. Both your father and your mother commented on your temper, but you were a, a young man and you were could see what was going on around you and, and you felt held back and you had anger, but there were some times that you, you talk about in the book where your mother really gave you a jab or, or you know, to put your anger down a little bit. But it was that anger and your seeing what was going on in your country that led you to believe that you could also be part of this movement of leaving the country and going to Hong Kong. The book is called Swimming to Freedom. And I'll say it's something that I had not heard of before, yet it seems like there might have been, I don't know, half a million people or so who tried making that journey swimming or, or taking a boat or um, being smuggled into Hong Kong. And you were involved with some people in your neighborhood who also had a similar perspectives to you. And um, how did you get involved with this notion of swimming to Hong Kong and that you believed that you could do it? Yes, I think the uh, I was pushed to the edge. I was born a good student, a good leader in school. I'm not a troublemaker. And then I'm not a risk taker, let's put it this way. But I was pushed by the system. I completely lost hope because my father, my father, I know I carry a very black dot in my dangan. Dangan means personal record. So I will not get much further. If Mao continue to run the um, extreme political selection process, but that's okay. I can bury it because my father always say, you need to endure. So, okay. So I be just ordinary people my whole life. 
But on the other hand, I'm not a brave person to risk my life to something risky. But fortunately, my classmate, my good friend, and he came from an even worse background from, from mine. His father was executed you know, by, uh, during the uh, liberation in, in the uh, 1950s because he's a landlord, he's an educated person. His mother also uh, hung herself after his father got executed. So he grew up with his uncle, and then the, the, the uncle turns out to be a very uh, determined person, want to escape to Hong Kong, escape to freedom, let's put it this way. And also, I'm very lucky in Canton City, by the sea, South China Sea, and then people have the tradition of when bad, bad, they just get the hell out of here, you know, go to other countries. So there's a tradition there. And then the uh, Hong Kong, it turns out to be another blessing. Is uh, Hong Kong still under the British uh, ruling? Is a colony still? Right. So they accept this uh, uh, refugee from the mainland China. The trigger point for me to push me to escape is during the Cultural Revolution. I see, well, this country, if under Mao, will be forever have no future for me because it's really become so clear, you have to be the revolutionary classes, the red class to be that. My father is a black class, so I'm, I'm out, completely out of the, of the good university, good school and good job. And then the, um, went to the village. And then over there, I also saw the execution, the public execution of, of 20 some political prisoners. And then all the people are not accused, they're just, accused to punish by uh, execution is because they say bad things about Mao. Now that really bring fear to me now because from death, my friends and then the uncle, I went to his place during the Cultural Revolution, during the, the Red Guard Wars. And then I joined this, I, I call the um, rooftop underground. We talk over there, we talk and then we criticize the government, criticize the the leader criticized Mao and his wife. And then also we have a shortwave radio. Yeah, this the voice, voice America. Now at that time, if you listen to Voice American, you can be executed just like that. But we have this underground people, everybody share the same political viewpoints of how to, uh, you know, to deal with the communists, uh, the, the hate communism basically, okay. So we get there, we listen, then we, open a new world to us outside, okay? Then we see, wow, there's so many things that become a um, underground things. And then those people are the pioneers in escaping to Hong Kong. And then my, my classmate is the one. So when I saw the public execution, then I think when the gun fires, that's really scary, okay? That night in the village, it's so dead quiet, even dark, I did not, Box because no one walk outside so scared. Inside fear, when you see people get killed in front of your eyes, a group of people, those people are just say bad things about the culture revolution, bad mouth, mouth. So I think everybody in our group, the under the rooftop underground, is yeah. going to be executed. So I think the, uh, that's really pushing yeah. to the limits. They say, I have to go. You had this tenacity. Uh, you you don't call it courage, but it was definitely determination. 
and to coming to Hong Kong and then the United States where the culture is so different. Did you find you felt free to be yourself? And is is that what the rest of your family felt also? Coming from China to Hong Kong is really some life-altering event. So today, I still, when I wrote my manual, I use iTunes to listen to the music of those music I listen all the time in Hong Kong. Those music is so loud, use the, um, those very low quality uh, speakers in the night market. There's a lot of China, American songs, Karen Carpenter's song, and also the Hong Kong song. Now, uh-huh. just imagine from uh, in the sense, okay, the, the, the senses of a person change. In China, what your eye can see is few colors, black, white, blue, dark blue. And also your smells is always the lousy smells, bad smells. Yes, the most important thing is the light. If you talk to anybody from mainland China, after you get out of China to Hong Kong, you say, what really is the difference? The light is so bright, okay? And then you don't really realize it because your, your eye was just at night, just the light just make your eye just so stimulating, right? So pinching to your eyes. But after you live in Hong Kong for a while or in America for a while, you go back to China. The first thing they always say is, how come so dark everywhere? So the sense you bombard or all sense get bombarded outside, okay? And then you see the, uh, the people. Nobody even care about what you're doing or what you're saying, right? And you see people just doing their business. It's so busy and so vibrant. So all this new sense coming in, that's why I always remember those songs. That was part of my conversation with Kent Wong, and his memoir is Swimming to Freedom, My Escape from China and the Cultural Revolution, an untold story. Earlier, I spoke with Jillian Haslam about her raw and inspiring memoir, A Voice Out of Poverty, The Power to Achieve, through adversity. I am Suzanne Lang, and I bring you a novel idea, the first and fifth Sunday of the month, and I thank you for listening. And I thank those who have already contributed money to the station, and I invite those who have not to visit us online at krcb.org donate, or just hit the large button that says donate. There's a big heart next to it. I thank James Morey and Mark Prell for their assistance. We are a production of Lit Radio and KRCB Northern California Public Media. Subscribe to our podcast and find past shows, including the one featuring Kent Wong, at krcb.org. It's a novel idea.